The vaccine stroll out is taking so long. CEOs want the borders open, even if some of us may die. Universities are being slow bled to death while well-paid managers wring their hands. The Fair Work Commission rules food delivery riders are employees. And the good news is about Estonian seabirds. Hello and welcome to the week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and with me live from Charles Sturt University in Wagga, Wagga is Van Batham. How are you, Van? I'm not well. I have the oh. flu. So I've been a bit of a delicate little flower. Well, that's not good. No, it's because you're not here. Ben was here, as you know, last week, but he had to go back to the big smoke to do smoky big things. So he's he's left me here with the mice and the cold, and I have flu. Me, 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 me. Oh, well, you know, we hope you get better soon, and we know that your uh, opening night is tonight, isn't it? Yes, I'll be limb-sipped up to the eyeballs, let me tell you. Yes, the opening night of the show I've been working on with the students, Party Beach, is tonight, and the ever-patient Nathan, who organises these broadcasts for us remotely, has done a bang-up job, although we have been joking that he's put on 10 kilos and it's all in the bags of exhaustion under his eyes. <laughs> for Nathan. Thanks again, Nathan, for all your help with the week on Wednesday. Well, Van's been in Wagga Wagga. I know we really appreciate it. And I know our listeners have enjoyed the improved sound quality. So <laughs> uh, let's hope it works today. There is a vacuum hovering in the background because it is opening night and we're um, deep cleaning the theatre. So Very good. Very good. So get along if you're in Wagga Wagga or near Wagga Wagga or within a five-hour drive of Wagga Wagga. Go and see uh, Van's new musical with Party Beach. Charles Sturt University. Brilliant. Now, we have some fantastic news. Ben and I have a sponsor. And it's fantastic news because, as Ben knows to his dismay, I get very ethical and picky about sponsorship. There are, there's money I will not take. I'm just that kind of girl. I would rather live in principled poverty. Um, But the good news is that we've managed to attract a sponsor who we promote anyway. So a big shout out to the new sponsors of the weekend Wednesday, Australian unions. Thank you. Thank you for sponsoring the show and making this possible. Ben and I have been doing this from our shed for 36 weeks um, and occasionally from Wagga with Nathan, as well you know. And uh, now what was um, a hobby of two hacks in their shed is a, is a going concern. So, Ben, do you want to do the first ad, which Absolutely. is something we would say anyway? Absolutely. We all want to see positive change in the world, but where do you start? Something you can do right now to drive that change is join your union. Union members are people of action. We don't just talk about what we hope for, we make it happen through strength in numbers. So go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W for week on Wednesday, for more info and to sign up. That address again, australianunions.org.au slash wow. Sign up, people. Join your union. Yeah, like I said, we would say that anyway, but now we have our own link. <laughs> So That's just think right. how cool it would be to join a union through the Week on Wednesday link. That's right. You can join your union through the Week on Wednesday link. That's pretty cool. I'm pretty happy about that. I know, right? I feel like I've achieved something with my life. <laughs> Fantastic. So hopefully everyone will get on and join their union today. So look, there's a lot to talk about today. Um, I want to get onto the vaccine stroll out. And as we know... The I market- love that, the vaccine stroll out. That's a Sally McManus special, that one. Oh, I thought Irrespective you- of them being our sponsor, yes. 
Yeah. Well, look, you know, this is this is a huge, huge problem, right? So Australia is about 10 million doses behind where we were supposed to be at this stage of the rollout. Um, and when you consider that we're 10 million doses behind on a target of 13 million, that's a long way behind. <laughs> the current predictions are that we'll have the population vaccinated by December 2022. That is six months after what's in the budget papers that Morrison and Frydenberg handed down. Cut it was only last week they handed those down. And so, you know, basically it means our borders are going to need to stay closed. Uh, and, and we're starting to see um, some of the vested interests in this space kick off. Like they want the borders open. You know, airline CEOs uh, aren't making money while the borders are closed. Uh, there's a whole range of corporate interests that are negatively impacted. Of course, there are people with family overseas as well, and we need to do more to facilitate that. But it's the kind of mass movement of people implicit in tourism and corporate travel that uh, I think is the biggest concern here. Uh, and people will be aware that yesterday, uh, the, the boss of Virgin Airlines, Jane Hedlicka, um, has said that uh, we need to reopen the borders, even if some people may die. And Where has Jane been, I wonder? Because I don't know if Jane has been in an environment where she has received any information about the coronavirus. So just to put this in context, Joe Biden, who, as it turns out, is a bit of a treasure as far as presidency of the United States go, um, is they're doing the world's biggest vaccination program over there. Of course, they are just pumping out the vaccine. They started uh, vaccinating newborn babies in America. And Biden has been saying that it's that America is going to take responsibility, ensuring the rest of the world gets vaccinated, because what they're learning is that this is not like a, a problem that rich countries can just solve and leave poor countries to die. They know that this virus is so awful that it incubates and mutates and changes into another virus. And the United States has actually got information that unless there is mass vaccination really quickly, all of the vaccinations that are taking place now may be useless in 12 months. So stopping the spread of coronavirus remains the number one priority as the vaccine is rolled out. For the CEO of Virgin to be like, well, a few people may die, sort of implies that she hasn't paid any attention to the hundreds of thousands of people who have died across the world since this began. It's not a few people. There are literally more than half a million dead Americans. And let's just remember, there are still hundreds of positive cases of coronavirus in America every day. Like the virus hasn't gone away because we've worked out a vaccine. Like she's literally suggesting that Virgin's corporate interests are more important than stopping the pandemic. Like, I just cannot get over her, her unwillingness to acknowledge the basic reality that the rest of us are now living in. Well, I mean, this is pretty typical of her response to things. You know, this is a person who was CEO of Jetstar, who had significant, significant issues with um, passengers, with workers, with investors, like... Um, this is the that's a lot of stakeholders to upset if you're yeah. the CEO of an airline. I think is, if you're making investors and passengers and customers and staff all upset, maybe the problem's you. And I'd encourage people to get on and Google uh, Google Jane because there's a really interesting backstory to this person. When you when you think about 
all of the kind of negative stereotypes of corporate greed, um, you'll, you'll see enough articles there about her uh, falling out with A2 Milk when she was CEO of that company and how that has fallen apart um, and the, the bad words exchanged in the press backwards and forwards about that. And, uh, and then, of course, she was installed by the new private equity owners of Virgin, um, having gone to work for those private equity owners uh, as CEO over the wishes of uh, many of the previous shareholders, stakeholders, and the workers. In fact, the TWU, uh, the Transport Workers Union, um, was very opposed to her appointment, um, and partly because of her track record. This is not a person who, um, you know, while the Prime Minister has said they're somewhat insensitive comments, frankly, they're not overly surprising if you're familiar with this person's track record. Uh, and it's a really sad state of affairs. As you say, the, you know, the coronavirus hasn't gone away. Um, and to suggest that some of us may die is actually saying that the most vulnerable people in our community should be, um, should be expunged, sacrificed for the benefits of virgins, private equity owners. Like that's an incredibly awful thing to say. We're talking about our elders, the people with a disability, you know, people who... Immunocompromised people like uh, my mum, yeah. uh, one of my closest friends, like, uh, it's, it's just awful. appalling. And at the moment, of course, we also know, and this has come out as well, so it's all sort of comes together when you think about it, that at the moment, less than 5% of people in disability support accommodation and the workers in that sector have actually been vaccinated, right? So you've got some of the most vulnerable people not vaccinated one of the in some ways a very powerful ceo who runs airlines saying we're going to bring in people from overseas um you know this is we've got a vaccine rollout that's miles behind that won't be complete for 18 more months it's absolutely outrageous uh and that five percent number when you think about the fact that nine people on the ndis have actually died from covid uh, already uh, and the the and this was something that just came out yesterday van it's really quite shocking that the morrison government made a decision to prioritize aged care over disability but didn't tell anybody uh, and even though they've done that prioritization they have only done 2163 first dose visits to those and i quote most at risk in our residential aged care facilities now, there are 9,000 aged care service services and almost 3,000 of those are residential facilities. So they've, they still haven't completed aged care. They're nowhere near, they basically haven't started um, disability support accommodation. Uh, and they've been underestimating these numbers and making the numbers wrong. You know, they underestimated the number of people in disability support accommodation by 20,000. You know, they're 10 million 10 million vaccinations short uh, and, and they can't even agree whether they're doing a good job or not. David Littleproud said, oh, yes, it's good enough because it's all on target, which it's clearly not. Morrison says, oh, no, we've got to do a bit better. And the, and the government appointee who made this secret decision around who would be prioritised and didn't tell anybody has st stood by that decision, saying that more people died in aged care than people on the NDIS. Well, more people died in aged care, as we've discussed many times before, because of the privatised nature of that service and the additional risk-taking and the decision to prioritise profit over the lives of Australian people. And now we see it at a macro level with the CEO of Virgin saying, oh, that's all right, we'll just throw open the doors 
and uh, and people some people will get sick, some people might have to go to hospital, some people may even die, but it'll be less than the flu. Like it's yeah, just Yeah, no, it's not okay. Horrible. And I mean it's it it's it shone a really interesting light like on how a lot of our modern attitudes are really we have to appreciate that humanity looks like it's come very far. But at the end of the day, the priestly caste is more than happy to strap somebody to a burning pyre if it's in their interest. You know what I mean? Like when people yeah. are like, oh, how did these terrible atrocities happen? Terrible atrocities happen when governments and powerful individuals make a decision that some people's lives just aren't worth as much as other people's. Like, you know this, I'm, you know, like I don't like to go on about my faith beliefs in because they're private. But number one, guys, number one in a good moral life is, is the sanctity of, of human life. We don't let people die. We don't strap people to burning pyres. We don't sacrifice a few people with disabilities or people in aged care because virgin's concerned about its profitability. That's not a thing we do. We protect all the life we can with all the intensity we can wherever we can. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it just also goes to show just how poorly the Morrison government has managed, not just the rollout, but the economic implications of COVID, the lack of planning, the decision not to do more, in effect, to save our aviation industry and to, as in some other countries, you know, nationalise that for at least the period of COVID. You know, I'd believe in it happening for a longer period than that even. It, it's a real sad state of affairs that somebody who claims to be this Christian, who has made it such a centerpiece of who he is as a leader and continually refers to it, continually comes back to it, gives interviews about it, leaks footage about it, does the whole show, um, is, is sort of prepared to let these kind of plundering profiteers off with a, oh, well, that's somewhat, somewhat disappointing. It's somewhat regrettable that that's the kind of attitude that a major corporate CEO is going to take. Well, it's not somewhat regrettable. It's absolutely outrageous. You know, I don't like to use the word outrage or outrageous because of the connotations, but it is outrageous. You cannot be a public uh, person. You cannot be the head of a public company. You cannot be a member of a parliament. You cannot run a major organisation and call for the sacrifice of Australian lives <laughs> to pump up your bonus. Yes. That's unacceptable. Yes, I, I'm. I like. I that's a very bitter laugh from me because the other thing is when coronavirus started, we heard all of this nonsense from the right. Like there was an infamous column in the AFR with one of the writers there going, you know, like my dad, he's had he's had a good innings, and you know, he'd be happy to die for the economy, and the, and everybody's fury was just palpable. Going, this is this is genocidal. Like yeah. the this attitude and I think it really woke a lot of people up like why does injustice continue why does inequality continue why does unfairness continue because there are literally people amongst us some of them are incredibly powerful that literally believe in human sacrifice and I think we have to start using those terms like yeah. do you support human sacrifice yes no well your answer to this question affects how you really should think about the CEO of Virgin and how they're going on at the moment and the idea that that particular CEO has just ignored everybody's reaction to that kind of, oh, well, you know, had a good innings, you know, kill the buggers kind of like, 
Oh, well, I, I, I get so disheartened. As you know, I tend to get very disillusioned when I'm unwell. And this is just like... Well, let, uh. let, let's just contextualise it, right? So I think it, what's important, one of the things that's important about this for people to really uh, grasp is that if, if there's corporate CEOs and or government ministers who are, who are prepared to sacrifice people for the economy, in inverted commas, as though that was something other than just millions of transactions conducted by individual human beings as they interact with each other on a day-to-day basis, which is actually what it is. But anyway, as though it were some other kind of um, spectral figure, if they're prepared to do that for, for the economy, imagine what they're prepared to do to your wages, your job security, your safety in the workplace. You know, if they if they are prepared to openly call for the sacrifice of human beings for their profit and their bonus. Just contextualize that in terms of perhaps the framework they apply to decision-making when it comes to your job, your safety at work, your wages, whether or not they really care that you get to spend time with your family on the weekends. Because I dare say those things are not high on their priority list. No, not really. Well, on that note. Even LIMSIP can't make this sad feeling go away. (laughs) On that note, I should read our second ad from our sponsor. From our sponsor, Australian Unions. I love this. I find this just hilarious. All right. Yep. This is great. So most of us know that we can achieve more together than we can alone. Germanicus agrees. But what's something you can do to drive positive workplace, social and political change? One of the most effective things you can do right now is join your union. Yay, join your union. Union members have fought for and won Medicare, super, leave entitlements, and so much more. They have a major role in making Australia a better place today and in the future. We at the week on Wednesday are asking you to be part of that change. It's time to join your union. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's W-O-W for the week on Wednesday. And you can uh, tell that the dog thoroughly supports the union movement from his happy, encouraging barking in the background. That's right. I miss that little fur monster. Yes, I do. He he makes a really interesting backing track for any uh, for any advertisement. Um, <laughs> uh, so look, I want to move on a little bit because there are other issues going on as well, and I think we've we've covered off the. Uh, the issues around COVID as they stand today. I'm sure there'll be more again next week. Um, But one of the things that you brought up, Van, um, was an article by your friend, uh, Jenna Price, a good friend of the show, a good friend of the movement, um, talking about how the universities in Australia are being slowly bled to death while these well-paid managers are really not standing up for their institutions and not standing up for their sector. Yeah, it's pretty appalling. So we talked last week about the budget and we do encourage you to, if you didn't hear that episode, to go back to it because we hit a lot of different areas of the budget with our critique and our insight. Uh, We know that everybody knows who's got any contact with the university sector that that sector's been in trouble for a while, that there has been creeping managerialism Uh, culture in the university sector for decades like that was going on when I was a student in the 90s that was uh, going on when Ben was a student in the thousands uh, with that uncomfortable age difference that means his music taste is terrible and we know yes and we know that um, we know that thousands of people have lost their jobs when coronavirus broke out 
um, the university sector was particularly hard hit because in Australia, the financial model that has sustained universities has been international students, like international students fund the sector. And of course, with the border closures, the international students are not coming. And as the coronavirus has dragged on, there it means that not only are students not coming, but the students who have remained, they will drop out of the system and that will be going. Obviously, all the crazy theatre of the government's cyber rattling against China has also had a massive impact on that sector because obviously international students from China are a big part of that particular community. So we know that there is a huge disruption to the to the financial model of the modern university. And we also know that the government has not made up the funding shortfall. Let's mm. remember that public universities were not given JobKeeper, were not given JobKeeper, but private universities were. And if that isn't like the most blatant case of the ideological priorities of this government, we know that this government doesn't like universities because they're still ideologically scarred by the 1960s. And genuinely, this is my theory. Like, why is there such hatred of universities, this obsession with what uh, academics teach, you know, as if academics are determined to turn universities into recruiting grounds for communists? You had the government facilitate that obscene um, project by the Ramsey Foundation, those crazy right-wingers who, you know, pump money into the teaching of like white history basically you know and talking about western civilization without any kind of critique and you know supporting you know critical thought only for people on the right is basically the the outlook well the result is that the budget takes another nine percent away from universities and jenna has written a really brilliant article because she knows what's going on she was employed at uts until quite recently and we have a lot of friends who work in the university sector and obviously have a, a grab bag of degrees from various institutions between us. And we know that morale in the sector is zero. We know that the staffing levels are too low. Entire tranches of support staff have been lost. So I've been out at CSU and I'm a, an artist in residence. Like my job is essentially to, you know, sit in my cottage, hopefully not get sick and quietly work. But I, I mean, the reason why I've kept coming back here is because you know, the way that I'm funded means that I can actually help and provide some kind of educational support to the students here. So let me just give you the example from CSU. They run a three-year performing arts course. Since the kids enrolled three years ago, they've lost all of the casual lecturers, which in an acting course means things like the voice teacher has gone. So they're training actors without specialist training in voice. And, they're, and they're, you know, there's no dance teacher, there's no movement teacher, you know, there's no theatre history, there's no dramaturgy. Like all the skills that are part and parcel of a theatrical training, which I had when I went through drama school, have dropped off. There is essentially two lecturers left in one department. And, you know, these courses are really popular. The universities are very happy to offer places to people to study, particularly around in popular courses, but not actually to resource them properly. It's it's unbelievable what is going on here because they're not just happening in creative arts. And, of course, you know, conservatives love bashing the arts, you know, because we're all obviously communists and blah, 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 you know, like people who are generally at the forefront of arguing for social liberalism, the worst people on earth, you know, those people who, who come from a culture that's about inclusion and diversity, how awful, like how terrible. But And it's not just arts degree either. It's everywhere. 
And of course, over coronavirus, universities used the experience of coronavirus to try more what they call flexible delivery. And this is this was going on when I was a student as well, and I'm sure it's the case with you. It's this whole idea of, oh, remote learning and we'll just yeah. outsource more stuff and it'll be cheap and yeah. we won't have students in a classroom actually learning or engaging with one another or asking questions or thinking about the things that they learn. We'll just deliver this content in like downloadable files across the internet and that'll be it. Whereas everyone, like I was doing a university course last year, as you know, online, and the Zoom format was completely ridiculous. Like it wasn't a way to learn and we didn't hit our course outcomes because, I mean, we were forced to by coronavirus in that particular instance, but it's not it's not an education medium. Yeah, And, and has- yet as more money gets taken out of the sector, students are just treated like themselves like really stupid customers basically that you can just feed them anything and abandon them you know you get a piece of paper at the end that's it sorry i'm really angry uh, that's right look and it has continued as well and it's not just in the arts you know i was at a meeting last night where a a very senior um uh business person who has operations in uh, regional victoria regional new south wales uh who's doing an mba at a regional university um, near where they live, not not because they need it for their career per se, but be to round out their, their capacity to run their business, um, has is still doing stuff on Zoom and has said, "Look, I'm just not getting thing. I'm just not getting anything out of this. Like, frankly, without the interaction with other people, without the capacity to debate these ideas and really interrogate the the theories and the practice." Um, of how they apply um, in business, I'm not getting anything out of it. So it's it's not just you know us communists who did arts <laughs> degrees and creative arts degrees. It's right through the spectrum of universities. And I've got to say, Van, you know, it it's really galling that the university sector is not stepping up. Right, like we've just talked about the CEO of Virgin who quite frankly has gone too far the other way in advocating for her company and her sector, but there's got to be a happy, happy medium here. Cause if you Google vice chancellor defense funding or universities slam cuts, like you don't get anything from university vice chancellors. These are essentially the CEOs of universities. Like you don't get anything from them defending the sector or calling out, the government, um, what you get is some stuff about them supporting cuts to funding while calling for higher student contributions. You get um, stuff about people slamming universities for making cuts, but there's, there's nothing in there about actually them standing up for the education uh, system in Australia, even their own university, really. Like you get these weird stories of one university vice chancellor giving a Zoom conference where they're making thousands of people redundant, cutting thousands of jobs, many of them casual, therefore no redundancy, and saying that people should, you know, enjoy some music, uh, you know, to to relax uh, if, if they're feeling stressed by this. If they're feeling stressed. So Jenna's article talks about how at Macquarie University, academics are essentially being made to pitch to keep their jobs. 
and talk about, you know, how have they added to the research quantum in the past five years? And there's a ranking list and you can go up the ranking list and save your job. And if you drop down the ranking list, they'll get rid of you. Like it is total madness. And morale is zero. The people who are hanging on to jobs are going on to stress leave. Like there was a, a story at CSU about one of the lecturers here got issued a timetable for 200 hours of teaching a week and had to point out that there aren't actually 200 hours in a week. Like that's impossible. That's not a thing. And I just want to, I'd like, I know that not all of our listeners had a university experience and you don't need to have a university experience to be happy and fulfilled in life, of course not. But I just want to dispel the, the image of universities from, uh, you know, movies that we're a bunch of beret wearing claret sipping poetry nerds in turtlenecks. Like the reason why the modern university developed the way that it is, and it still is like that in other countries, was because, you know, that uh, the whole idea of socialization and developing skills around, you know, networking, meeting people, asking questions, feeding back, you know, whether it's arts or engineering or anything else, we develop universities because human modern human societies have really complex demands that require people with specializations. We've seen throughout coronavirus how important it is to have really sophisticated communication skills. That's what people learn in arts degrees, how to fashion language, to share messages, how to communicate information. That's the point of an essay is that you should be able to leave university if you have a humanities degree in particular, being able to explain anything to people and have the research skills to communicate that. When you denude that, when you take away those skills from a professional class that doesn't exist as some kind of indulgence, it exists as a necessity, that's when things go terribly wrong. And if we strip back the skill base of our graduates, we're going to have massive social problems. Like these are not indulgence institutions. Universities are not about lifestyle. They're about specific training in skill sets that are needed so bridges don't fall down and buildings don't topple over and and people can go to the doctor and get treatment and that there is a a group of people whose professional job is to explain how things work to everybody else and i just get terrified like and especially having the contact with the students here and the gaps in their knowledge like it is an absolute on the issue of regional universities it is an absolute betrayal of every single family from a regional area that when resources are taken out of regional universities in particular like there's no compensation for that in the infrastructure like look at Wagga okay and look at doing a performance course out here these kids can't go to Sydney and see theatre they can't just turn up at festivals like geographically there are limitations on other things they can experience the whole idea of regional universities was to develop specialist education that would mean that you could stay with your family you could stay in your community you know you could continue to like study and work where you where you live build that community up and you could build that community out and you could put those the skills that you developed and that there would be a way to make sure there was no disadvantage to you if you were regional that you could have the same dreams as a kid from the city you could have the same dreams as a rich kid and have the same opportunities and while like It is shameful of Michael McCormack, quite frankly, the Deputy Prime Minister and the member for Riverina, what's going on at this university and every other rural and regional university in this country, because they're not graduating 
with like equal experience to the kids from the inner city universities mm. because they don't have the same external cultural compensation or opportunities those kids do. And that's discrimination. That's an active structural discrimination of rural and regionally based students. No, it is, it is terrible and it is frankly unacceptable it, and it betrays the ethos that the Nationals claim to have. Uh, and it flies in the face of, of what Goff did when he set up so many of our regional universities um, and training institutions. I want to also point out that, you know, countries like China are pouring billions of dollars into training and educating their citizens. Countries in Europe are pouring billions of dollars into training and educating their citizens. They're not doing that to have more beatnik poetry bong sessions they're doing that because it means they'll have more engineers they'll have more thinkers they'll create new products they'll innovate they'll change things they'll have advanced manufacturing they'll generate wealth prosperity and integrated communities and societies if you think china's pouring money into higher education because it wants you know its people to to have a, a lifestyle experience you're clearly not reading up about china that's not why they're doing it. Yeah, that's not really a thing so in terms of in terms of the one-party authoritarian government of China. So for us to be cutting cutting education, higher education in particular, is just ridiculous and flies in the face of any sensible economic plan or strategy. And can we also, no, no, I want to make this point about cultural power as well. So you've got all the nitwits in the government and around it who are like, oh, yeah, China, oh, yeah, there might be a war. You know, like what happened to like cultural offensives? Like the way the West won the Cold War was by massively investing in culture and making Western culture like appealing and exciting. Does everybody remember like how during the Cold War, the kids in the Soviet Union who would like be desperate to get rock albums and and blue jeans and see Hollywood movies and all of those things. Zhukov demanded crates of Coca-Cola. Yes. (laughs) Yes, Zhukov, the field marshal of the Soviet army in World War II all he wanted to do as a reward for occupying Berlin at the end of the war was to drink Coca-Cola. And Ben and I love this story because Coca-Cola was considered so Western and so evil. Coca-Cola made a special Zukov Coke, which was white, and they made it in a Coke bottle with a red star. So it was Zukov Cola. It's an amazing story. But we used to understand the power of that. The CIA used to have a front called the Congress for Cultural Freedom where they pumped money into poetry journals hilariously and films and cultural products and touring shows and all of that stuff because you know the as as um sun tzu says the best way to win a war is to not have to fight it and while and you can look at somewhere like korea that has spent the past 20 years so heavily investing in its music industry and so heavily investing in its film industry korean movies win academy awards korean language movies the most successful band in the world at the moment is a k is a k-pop band and the, the, the strategy of that is not just about creating jobs and, and participating in the global economy. It's because South Korea is a country extremely vulnerable to North Korean 
in like um, in invasion and they're creating a force of cultural resistance that the rest of the world is in, involved in, in what happens in Korea because of the prominence of the art that it makes, you know, and this identity of this country that the rest of the world thinks is special and important. And so you have these nitwits, nitwits in Canberra who are like, China, brr. And I'm like, well, as a country of 25 million people, as, a, as opposed to a country of a billion people, and as a country that doesn't have more than a million people in its own People's Liberation Army, don't you think that investing in forces of cultural resistance, in creative thinking, you know, in, in representing a, a Australian identity as something precious and robust and something that the world, like that's the form of engagement yeah. that has worked, you know, that's what worked in the Cold War, that's what's worked for South Korea and yet no we're just going to strip universities let them fail abandon any kind of cultural effort create a generation of people who don't have a proper set of skills to innovate in science engineering technology or anything else or business or management we yeah it's just it's a heartbreaking time and I think one of the things that you know is striking is that this the money that is invested is so often going into these executives um, and this managerial class now, you know, Melbourne Uni has 73% of its staff as casuals, 90% of Sydney Uni casuals are underpaid, according to one recent survey, the, the vice chancellor of Sydney University gets paid $1.6 million a year, the, the Senate of Sydney Uni, which is effectively their board, has a former Foxtel executive on it, and the director from the, the quite scandal-plagued New South Wales government organisation, iCare, which people might remember from Four Corners exposés about how it's treated injured workers. So really, it's it's it is a it's an issue that cuts across so many different parts of our society. And the old kind of tropes of oh well, you know, university workers are safe and secure. <clears throat> they're they're jobs for life. They're well paid. Um, that's gone out the window. Uh, and frankly, there's a solidarity issue here. Um, because those workers are often in solidarity with workers in other parts of the economy as well. Um, and frankly, you know, they have been pilloried by aspects of the media, by the government. There's been this pretense about who they are when the reality is they're working people who are struggling in an industry that devalues them. Um, That's massively casualised. It's the most casualised yeah. industry in Australia is academia. Yeah, and it adds such value to us intellectually, culturally, and, and, and as a matter of our strategic national position. So, yeah, look, it's, a, it's an important issue and hopefully um, we start to see movement there. But I think the reality is that's going to require a change of government before we see any true change. Oh, look, absolutely. Absolutely. That's literally the only solution for the sector is to kick the Liberals out. I mean, um, we can have mealy mouth conversations about, oh, well, you know, we can, and reading some of the vice chancellor statements, like, oh, yes, we found like soft lobbying uh, is really effective. Oh, and it's like, yeah, no. Well, why'd your why sector lose another 9% of its funding in the budget, you fools? Yeah, it's, it's amazing to see these supposedly very intelligent people who are claiming huge, huge wages and salaries and bonuses and whatnot say things that are just clearly provably untrue uh, and total nonsense. Um, it's a real feather bedding of their own nest. Um, so don't forget to, if you are in that sector, to join the NTEU, the Union for uh, Tertiary Education Workers. Uh, I do want to talk about 
this is the final story before we get on to some good news. In, in itself, I think, is actually good news. The Fair Work Commission yesterday ruled that food delivery workers for Deliveroo are employees. Now, this, Van, comes from a case from April last year. Uh, a driver named Diego Franco was unfairly dismissed. Um, the, the Transport Workers Union took up the case. We've talked about this before, the, 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 the gigification, the digital sham contracting that's going on in our economy. Uh, and we're seeing it. It sort of started with Uber. It's moved into food delivery. We're starting to see it in the care industries as well. But the, the Fair Work Commissioner said that Mr. Franco was treated hard. The dismissal of Mr. Franco was harsh, unjust, and unreasonable. Uh, he... The correct characterization of the relationship between Mr. Franco and Deliveroo is that of employee and employer. He was not carrying on a trade or business of his own or on his own behalf. Instead, he was working in Deliveroo's business as part of that business. The level of control that Deliveroo possessed when properly comprehended represented an indicum that strongly supported the existence of employment rather than independent contractor. This is a huge, huge decision Deliveroo are going to appeal it, um, obviously, because it fundamentally disrupts their business model, which is, as I say, it's digital sham contracting. It's disrupting the employment market and returning to the the, queue, the sort of food line queues and the, and the work queues of the 1920s. The Deliveroo have said, we do not accept the premise upon which the decision was taken. It's almost Morrison-esque, isn't it? And do not believe this reflects how Deliveroo riders work with the company in practice. Riders have the absolute freedom to decide whether, when, and where they work. And if they do go online, they can decide how long to work and can freely reject any offer of work offered to them. Um, riders do not need to provide personal service. They can use delegates to complete deliveries. Riders can and do work with multiple platforms, including competitors, at the same time. Deliveroo, the delivery spokeswoman said the company would appeal this decision to protect those freedoms. So there you go, Van. It's a, a freedom to the be- freedom to be exploited. The freedom, the freedom to be, to be used. I just love the idea that, oh, they're free to delegate their jobs to other people. And it's like, really? Sham contracting from sham contracting. I wonder what the people who deliver drivers are, are, are delegating to earn, like 10 cents. Like, this is just ridiculous. Well, I think it's great. Like, I mean, it's obvious that these people are employees. Of course they're employees. And this sham contracting model, like, has to be stamped out, you know, if... Well, yeah. it's outrageous, isn't it? And we're seeing other countries start to move in this direction as well, just to say, just because it's in the corporate interest to pretend these people are something other than employees and workers for your company because it saves you money, um, it doesn't mean that it's right or legal or fits in the ethical framework of our society. Um, the freedom to be exploited is something that we did away with in this country well over 100 years ago with the harvester judgment when we decided as a country there would be minimum wages in, in this country. There would be a tribunal that would determine disputes between employers and employees, that workers had the right to join a union and to, and to take up issues around wages and safety and job security as part of that process. This sort of erosion that's happened over the last 40 years of neoliberalism, and you've talked about this many times, it may have weakened the fabric of those decisions, but fundamentally 
those decisions remain in place. And it's good to see a swing in the other direction, a swing towards workers and the rights of people to actually be people. You know, I'd much rather have the freedom that comes from having secure work and a secure income and being able to negotiate my hours and knowing that I'm going to have uh, more than the minimum wage or at very least the minimum wage every week in my bank account than the freedom to be exploited. Um, that's just outrageous. Let's just remember that these companies don't exist. They don't, they're not really about service provider. They're not really about service providing, right? The business of, of Deliveroo is not really about getting food to you. It's exploiting loopholes in industrial and business law in order to create any service like this is this whole notion of, of platform provision that platform provision has essentially become a corporate exploitation exercise just directing to bits of the economy where they think that workers can be exploited and you know like i used to before i became a reformed character on social media which is something i'm glad you have supported ben or encouraged for many years um is that i mean i get into a lot of fights about the greens as you know and get very stressed about you know when people insist that the greens are a left-wing party well left-wing people believe in a fair day's pay for a fair day's work left-wing people believe in um in sharing the wealth and sharing opportunity and about you know the, the dignity of a job and the inherent rights of working people to respect and that is being paid properly and that is having award conditions and one of the things that that alarmed me about the greens and when i discovered it nick mckim who's a senator for tasmania in his maiden speech when he became a senator gave this wonderful sort of prose poem in support of uber and encouraging that this corporate model of employment that absolutely nakedly exploits people was something that the Greens were completely in support of and they wanted to have that model extended to labour hire and to childcare. And the line he used was um, the lightest possible regulatory touch from government, the lightest possible. And I just went, you are not my people. Like this is ideologically has got nothing in common with the values that I have and I will fight for. You are not the comrades on my journey at all. People should check that out on hindsight because it is it does make for interesting reading and i think the 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 evolution of the sector which frankly was foreseeable even at that point has has really um i think made it clear that that approach does not work that that, that you have to regulate these things properly and we're seeing the expansion of this right so it's it went from Uber and people went, oh, well, you know, taxi drivers, that's sort of exploitative as well. So you know, uh, then it's gone to food delivery and, you know, five people died in two months doing food delivery through these digital sham contracting platforms last year, just last year, you know, five people in two months. Um, and to a degree, I've got to say that I think there's been some cynicism from some sections of the public about, Oh, well, you know, they're, they're usually um, foreign nationals or there's international students. Oh, we or... don't need to call that cynicism, Ben. We can call it what it is, racism. Yeah, and I think that's appalling, frankly. Um, it, so it's good to see that turning around. And can I just give a huge amount of credit and shout out to the, to the TWU, the Transport Workers Union, because this is not a heavily organised sector of the workforce. These are not usually these are not people who have been members for a long time, if at all, and they've taken up a number of these cases because they understand that the, that the digital sham contracting model, as it expands out, is likely to go for 
uh, and he's already going for couriers, um, truck drivers, childcare uh, workers, childcare workers, the NDIS. You know, there is a real there is a real battle going on in the NDIS around how uh, workers are treated um, and whether there's digital um, sham contracting platforms, there's digital employment platforms, and there's bricks and mortar provision. And of course, the government of the day who controls pricing in that sector is leaning heavily towards supporting digital sham contracting platforms because it saves the government money even if it leads to worse outcomes for clients. Because what anyone with uh, disabilities or anybody in any particularly vulnerable situation needs is uh, a workforce that is completely exploited uh, with uh, absolutely no employer accountability. I mean, I think that's a, I mean, that's a brilliant, that's the brilliant logic of capitalism. So we have this group of people who have complex needs and the people who are going to serve them are, um, you know, undertrained through un- the university sector, employed on basically nothing um, in situations where their employers take absolutely no responsibility for what they do. Wow. I wonder how that's going to turn out for everyone. Oh, well, we've seen how that turns out. Let's not forget COVID, the, the, the peak of COVID in this country the, the worst impacted sectors were the heavily casualized aged care sector, the parts of, of aged care where you essentially had this on-demand workforce. And in fact, one of those uh, digital sham contracting platforms uh, was called in by the government to help find more workers for the sector and couldn't find them. You had actual locations sending people away going, you're not trained. You don't know how to put on the personal protective equipment. You know, the, the reality is that if you if you engage people in sham contracting arrangements, safety gets cut, wages get cut. You know, the, the only people it really benefits, because now, of course, they'll make the argument, oh, well, now you'll have to pay an extra $2 for your pizza to be delivered. And, oh, now you'll have to pay an extra $1.50 for that. I, I'm happy with that. I love my pizza to arrive, to arrive without the blood of exploded people on it. Yeah, like, right. I love getting a pizza on time because no one has died on the way to deliver it. Like I'm, I'm a huge fan of if these services, uh, if these services cannot guarantee people's safety, they're not services that I want to use. I will, I will defrost a a, a pizza in the oven the old-fashioned way, well, rather than exploit another person in order to provide me that pizza. I just, I would just prefer to go to bed at night knowing that I wasn't participating in something that that was hurting the people in my community who provided it. Like how can you look in the face of the person at the door who's made the delivery knowing that your recruitment of that person to that service as a customer is what's compromising their safety on a daily basis? Yeah, and it is... Look, there is there is good news in this in this space though, right? Because oh, this decision is fantastic. This decision is fantastic. Menu log, um, and again, the union movement has encouraged people to support menu log because they're looking, they're moving to an employment based model uh, in the NDIS sector. A company that I've done some work with um, uh, higher up has an employment based model um, of, uh, for their workers. Uh, still using still using the apps and all the digital technology that we all enjoy and make our life so easy, which just goes to prove, right? Technology doesn't have to equal exploitation. Like, no. It's not, it's not an advancement if you use an app to exploit someone as opposed to having to exploit them face-to-face. 
it's still exploitation and it's still wrong. But the good news is that there is movement in this space. Now, there'll be a federal court case because, as we, as we know, Deliveroo will fight for the freedom to be exploited um, and fight for the freedom to exploit people. But at least we're seeing, I think, some community backlash on this. And don't forget, as you've said before, Van, we live in a corporate consumerist society where you as an individual, if enough individuals make the choice not to use these sorts of services and stick with the employment-based services, the menu logs, the higher-ups, um, these other other uh, bricks and mortar, you know, go to a shop occasionally, um, then the model starts to be less profitable for exploitation. So Van, let's move on to some good news because we've run long today. It's been a good discussion, but what's the good news? It's about seabirds. Seabirds? Um, yeah. So seabirds really cop it from commercial fishing because seabirds uh, see all the fish that get caught in the nets and they dive down to get them and then they get caught in the nets. And they estimate around 400,000 seabirds. That sounds pretty conservative to me. I'm quite sure um, it, it's a lot worse. In um, in it, uh, part of what they call bycatch, which are the yeah. things that are caught that they're not trying to catch. And this also happens to seals. And you and I got very emotional at the seal sanctuary that we went to in England when we saw the little seals blinded by getting their eyes caught in nets and things. And <laughs> it upsets me. Anyway. So in Estonia, conservationists are really concerned about um, uh, like seabirds in, in general, in particular a duck, an Estonian duck, which is quite threatened in various waters. So they've created a floating scarecrow and the scarecrow is amazing because it looks like Wally. You know, the, the yeah. is it a Pixar movie, Wally, yeah. about the robot on the planet made of junk? And which turns out to be Earth. Yes, yes, I, I know. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Yes. Um, they, sorry, I've just ruined Wally for everyone. Oh, God, wait until I talk about Planet of the Apes. Anyway, um, this floating scarecrow has the Wally head with the big eyes, oh. and it's the eyes and the positioning of the eyes which deters the birds. And already, like they did a, a very short trial of it, and in about six weeks, it reduced the amount of bycatch by 25%. That's amazing. Yeah, That's so they're going to they're going to trial them everywhere, and um, always you know whoever will yeah. pick up the technology because it's effective floating Wally shaped bird scarecrow. That's such great news. That is such great news. I love these stories. Please send me happy environmental news because they're literally what get me out of bed in the morning. Otherwise, I'd have very very little reason, especially when I'm sick and suffering from you know the uh, the uh, the the co symptom of um, disillusionment, as well. You know. Well, I want to do our final ad for our sponsor before we wrap up the show. Um, why be a member of a union? We know that unions protect you. We've heard today stories about uh, unions taking up the fight for workers. And if you ever need, find that you need help at work, including legal advice and representations, that's where the union helps you. And in every study and survey, the data shows union members on average receive significantly better pay and conditions than non-members. And they're happier. They're happier, you, but union membership is so much more than job security and better pay. It's the most effective way to increase power of working people and drive positive workplace, social and political change. There's strength in numbers and you can be part of that. So go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, to join your union. I think it's so great that the week on Wednesday now has its own union join. I know, right? Like you could just go online and be like, oh, yeah, I listened to the week on Wednesday. Yeah, AustralianUnions.org.au. Yeah, slash wow. Easy as that. Simple. 
So get on there, join your union and support the support the movement that supports working people that is made up of working people and that is supporting the week on Wednesday. Yes, which is just amazing. Like please be that person who who is a union member and isn't the person. One of the saddest phone calls I ever got in my life was a friend of mine who was a retail worker who was injured, received a really serious head injury in a storeroom accident because something hadn't been stored properly and it fell off a shelf, hit him in the head. And he wasn't a member of the union, which meant that he called me going, please help, I don't know what to do, I've had this injury. And he, you know, had to take everything on himself and find lawyers and go through that process alone um, when he had an injury and it was the worst time of his life. And it broke my heart. Like being a union member is like having the world's best insurance because, you know, hopefully you'll never have to call the union, but you don't want to be that person who gets hit in the head with the box at work and then is, is fighting for really basic rights to like care and support at the most vulnerable time of your life. Join the union. Yeah, join today. Join today because you might need it tomorrow. So join today. Um, look, this has been the week on Wednesday. Uh, you know, we have uh, managed the remote from Wagga. So thank you so much again to Nathan. Oh, he's superb. Uh, Another He's fantastic a show. Uh, break a leg for tonight, Ben. We say chookers. Is that what we say? Yeah, yeah. In Australia, we say chookers. And I think I'm going to retire to my bed and catch up on some sleep. Otherwise, tonight will be very difficult. So, yes, thank you for bearing with me, given the fact I am so croaky and ill. And don't forget to tune in to the Weekend Wrap every Sunday afternoon. Uh, please do share this link. Uh, you know, somebody, somebody said the other day, that there are 25 million people in Australia and uh, 14 million of them are not on, on uh, Twitter. So email people the link, talk about the show. If you're enjoying the show, I'm sure your friends and family will enjoy the show as well. Uh, certainly we enjoy making it. And thanks again to our sponsor, uh, the Australian Unions. Uh, love you, Vanny. I love you too. I miss you. I'll see you soon. Bye. Look after the dog. Bye.